Hi listeners, I'm Lisa, the founder of Maxine VR and the host of Maximize Mental Health. This podcast is for Gen Z and everyone who wants to talk about mental health, struggles and everyday problems. Every week we're inviting guests who are sharing their personal stories. Join us for casual conversations between our co-hosts Barbara and Ryan and our weekly guests who are breaking taboos and stigma around mental health. Welcome to Maximize Mental Health. Hello everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Maximize podcast for Gen Z. I'm your host, Ryan Michael Hannon, joined here by Reese McKinney, a student at Duke University and TEDx speaker as well, delivered a very interesting TED talk on the subtler aspects of masculine condition. And that was the prelude to him being invited here today. Welcome, Reese. How are you? Thank you so much, man. It's good to see you. Likewise, likewise. So obviously uh, I reached out to you. On LinkedIn just prior to this this call, so you kind of know what it's about. Your TED talk was very, very interesting. And I think you touched on a lot of things that I think are maybe overlooked in the, the particular discussion that you were referring to. So it was really, really interesting. And I think you touched upon the subtler aspects, you know, of kind of masculine conditioning in there and the conditioning that kind of takes mm-hmm. place whenever you're being socialized as a as a male in kind of like our societies. Mm-hmm. So what do you think is the best way? Because you're right in pointing out that it's difficult for people to notice those subtle things. What do you think is the best way you can communicate to young boys and you know teenage boys who are just coming through that crucial developmental phase about those subtler aspects? How do you think we can the best? What would be the best approach for educating them and you know let them know about it? I mean, yeah, and that's a great question. I think it's a question for a lot of social issues. How do we how do we communicate it? How do we get to it? I think the truth is it's not going to start with someone, even if they're on a TEDx stage, it's not going to start with some big figure saying, all right, boys, listen up. Here's how you're going to act. Here's how, here's the best way to go about handling yourself. It starts in these really, really small sp- spaces. If it's not your father, then it's your teacher. If it's not your teacher, then it's your coach. If it's not your coach, then it's your mentor. We need our role models to, you know, behave this way. We need them to, set up a model for kids, set up a model for boys. It's hard to it's hard to pinpoint an exact wording of this, hard to pinpoint the exact way to do this. I I think I made this point in my TED talk as well. I'm not a, a gender studies expert. I'm not a psychology and sociology expert. I think my the point of my talk and the point of kind of highlighting these subtler things is just to keep it on people's minds. If a teacher goes into a classroom, you know, with this thought that I am a role model in ways that I don't sometimes think about, you know, I recently spoke to a teacher for a different project that I'm working on about teachers and masculinity. And he basically said something like, well, you never know when you're going to make an impact. You never know when you're going to be a role model. You kind of just say and do things. And years later, a kid will reach out and say, hey, what you did really made an impact on me. And he says, oh, I don't know. I didn't even remember that. I didn't even remember saying that. I didn't even remember doing that. So it starts there. It starts in just the, the little ways you carry yourself. It means when you're in a class and you're having a hard day, you say it. If you see a kid upset, you talk to him. You make him feel real for it. It starts in those really, really small spaces. Completely agree. I think with any, I think with any phenomenon where you're trying to tackle the subtler aspects of it, I agree that it completely starts in, you know, not so much kind of laid out goals and, you know, almost political awareness in a way. Although those mm-hmm. things are very important as well. I'm not not discounting them, but I think, you know, everyday kind of emotional interaction, conversations, language used, you know, like facial expressions given, you know, all of those things, body language, mm-hmm. all of those things definitely, you know, 
it's kind of like a hyper awareness and a consciousness of all those things mm-hmm. i think is the best way to tackle it and then because that will help provide a good template you know for better socialization maybe later in the life you know once you're, you're aware of all those subtle realities so i completely agree so there's some there are some kind of you know interesting definitions of what actually constitutes you know traditional masculinity um it has shifted across many many eras and mm-hmm. one that we kind of look to reshift these days has really only been around you know kind of since the industrial revolution in a way mm-hmm. and so it hasn't been around really that long and especially when you consider yeah. the life of the species you know in a way it's definitely not long it's but yeah a one definition though i can't remember who came up with this definition but it's a really interesting one i think and it's an interesting it provides an interesting lens through, through which to to view a lot of the things that occur in society so she basically, I wish I could remember her name, but she basically said she defined it as power over. So having power over something. And I think like that, when you look at things like violent crime, for example, through that mm-hmm. lens, I think it's a very interesting lens to look at that. So a lot of the explanations mm-hmm. for violent crime, for example, you know, the poverty and all, again, very, very valid. But I feel like in the case of violent crime, poverty only kind of provides the material what would you say the material filter through which that power drive expresses itself it just changes mm-hmm. the way it expresses so the rich guy is not going to commit violent crime because he doesn't need to he's already got power in other ways but the i think you know violent crime you know 85 percent to 90 percent committed by young men so mm-hmm. clearly that's you know there's something on there worth exploring you know sociologically mm-hmm. psychologically but what do you think is that do you think that definition of it you know having power over something you know is a helpful way to view a lot of those things like violent crime you know, sexual crime all the rest of it i think in a sense on the on the grand scale on the on this upper end of crime and you know big power drives of the people at the very top these really big kind of really big abstract examples and concepts like violence i think if you take that same concept power over and you bring it down to the small, small setting, the small, the kid on the playground, the kid on the wrestling mat, the kid on this, this power over oneself, I think, is a good way to describe where it begins. It's not just the power over other boys on the playground, the power over this. It's it's assuming you have the power over your emotions. You have the power over your how you carry yourself as a human. And you do. You do. You have that power. You and I both go into this world controlling how we present ourselves, how we talk, the words we choose. But as a kid who doesn't understand maybe the, you know who they are as a person yet, they're still exploring that. They assume they have to put that power over it, put that power over their emotional explorations, their feelings, their how they express themselves creatively. Maybe that's where it leads to. I'm skeptical. To kind of to how to how to like connect these two between the big big examples of power over versus these tiny examples, I don't know. I think I'd, I'd like to think on that more. That relationship, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. It's such a it's such a complex thing because, and you're completely right because of I think a lot of the problems that we have is is a lot of these terms are are, are just so academic in nature. It's difficult to kind of for a lot of people to kind of relate to them in the way that maybe mm-hmm. it would be best served, you know. So, but I think. You're completely right. And I think like things like, you know, violent crime and all that, I think it starts very, again, in those subtle patterns, you know, and I think mm-hmm. if there, there's some interesting literature on crime, for example, where it talks about kind of like, if they feel like they, especially crime and masculinity in a way, if 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 a, if a kind of a young man, say, you know, he grows up, he maybe has a very unfortunate start in life, you know, there's a lot of poverty there, maybe his father died young or his father was absent mm-hmm. and all the rest of it, you know, it's kind of like, 
if he if he feels like he can't hit the culturally accepted model of masculinity, you know, which is dominated by sort of white middle class norms, like generally mm-hmm. speaking, there are some variations, mm-hmm. but generally speaking, it's seen as the ideal. If he feels like he can't hit that, he has to attain it in some other ways, you know. And I mm-hmm. think again, started those subtle patterns, you know. You grow up, you see, you know, guys fighting each mm-hmm. other. If it's a really rough neighborhood, you know, you see guys fighting each other. You mm-hmm. see violence, gang violence is probably motivated by that same thing, and it's just. I agree. And it's it's a very complex kind of endeavor that we all have to undertake to try and link, you know, the the the, the sort of the most obvious displays of it that we find really bad and toxic mm-hmm. with the subtler behaviors, you know, that you've highlighted. And I think it's a it's a tough task for us, but I think it's definitely worth undertaking. So I'm in complete mm-hmm. agreement with you there. What what changes would you like to see in the next sort of 10 20 years with regards to you know awareness of these masculine norms shifting of these norms but if you could pick like one or two changes or as many as you want actually what would you like to see in the next sort of 10 20 years it's it's a good question one change i definitely want to see is understanding the scope of what we define as masculinity i think in this age it's a lot of political polarization especially here in the states it's just so black and white you have your liberals and your conservatives, you have these just these big ideology groups and how that how masculinity fits in that is you are either, you know, these really kind of words that just put down like soft, you know, all these words we've been talking about that put down men who express themselves emotionally or are kind of more emotionally balanced. And then you have this other end, which people see as like the hardcore, the violent crime. It's like these like two like you can you you can't be this but you can't be this you know my, many many men most men exist in this space here it's not fair to say to that man well you don't know how to express yourself emotionally they just only they may only do it in one way like anger or you know something like that whereas over here you might see more willingness to be to open up to someone if people can start to view that scale and understand that there isn't just this either or we can start to get better at fixing the areas in the gray space instead of trying to wrestle with these really big extremes we're very we, we magnetate mag yeah we go towards these extremes a lot and it's i think that's frustrating that's a big change other than that yeah i think in a perfect world i'd like to see men more comfortable with their masculinity and that doesn't just mean a lot of the, the blanket term that people use is like boys should cry, boys should cry. I think that's a very surface level kind of understanding of it because it's not that. There's this other podcast, this other group called uh, We Are Men Enough, and it, they they really just dedicate their whole platform to just highlighting good examples of being a father, you know, helping a kid through a game. It's just this. It's just this much different space rather than oh, let's just highlight all the stories of people crying because I think that's what kind of weirds people out. It's maybe they're that's something they're not used to. Maybe that's an emotional thing that is just not a part of who they are or where they came from. But if they can understand that they can feel and however way that comes and and express it to the people around them, not just through kind of anger or stoicism, I think that would be a big benefit i want to be careful with the language i'm using because everyone lives this different life everyone lives a different background and to tell a kid who grew up just in a in terrible circumstances without role models that oh 
you know, you need to feel this a certain way. You need to express it a certain way. It's difficult. It's so difficult because some people only know one way. I think the change I'd like to see is have the opportunity to realize that you're a human being and you feel things. Take that as you will. That might start in the classroom, might start on the wrestling mat. It might start somewhere. Wonderful. No. Thank you so much for that. I think I completely agree. And I think it's it's kind of it's 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 almost sad to me in a way because uh, there's obviously a few but we we could both probably recall so many examples like you know mm-hmm. of all this, this sort of thing growing up where like you're talking to what well, one thing I really noticed and this is one thing that maybe sort of facilitated me coming more aware of you know all this stuff as I sort of grew older was you're talking to a friend see when it's just one to one you're talking to a friend you know you actually mm-hmm. can't have a male friend, you know, who's been tristly socialized even, you know, you actually can have a good bond, you know, and you can have a good mm-hmm. conversation. The minute you add another couple of guys to that group, yeah, and the dynamic mm-hmm. completely changes, especially if you're not friends, especially if they're just classmates. You might not, you might get on pretty well with them, but they're not, say, you're not close friends. The minute you mm-hmm. inject in, say, two or three other guys from your class, mm-hmm. that disappears and it changes and it becomes, you know, all, just all that nonsense usually, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just... That's one of the things that I was like, like, why, why is that? You know, I'm like 14, 15, why, why does that happen? You know, why is he shifted from having this really say interesting, open conversation, no need for toughness or as you would say, stoicism to just this shift into this kind of like braggadociousness Mm -hmm. and just, yeah, yeah. It's just, I just like, why, why was this taking place? Like I, I, I I can't thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it. So you're Mm -hmm. completely right. I think you use a really like touching example in your Ted talk as well of, you spoke about two touching examples, you know, your cousin, you spoke about him, you know, having, you know, Mm -hmm. when he broke up with his girlfriend and, you know, how he, mm-hmm. he switched up his language kind of in your car seat, mm-hmm. you know, and started using mm-hmm. derogatory terms. And then you also spoke about your grandfather as well, who you mm-hmm. think would take a stiff upper lip to his grave, used a very, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I, I'm totally familiar, familiar with that. <laughs> in my case, I was like, yeah, I've experienced mm-hmm. that too. But yeah, it's just like, I completely agree. And I take your point about meeting people where they're at in a way. So like you said, if you're talking to guys who had, you know, no role models, terrible start in life, you know, gets his like ideas about masculinity from really dreadful sources. And, you know, I think it is all about meeting people where they're at because when you're talking to people here, say 30, 40, 50 years old, like that's two, three, four decades of so- of socialization. Mm-hmm. It's going to be really difficult for you to get in and change that software and mm-hmm. change fundamentally, you know, change the prism through which they perceive. And yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you're completely right on that point. I think, and that's, I think that takes us nicely into the next, the next question. You pointed out that the phrase, you know, toxic masculinity can kind of evoke def- defensiveness in men. And I've kind of found that too as well. And I think it causes a resistance to maybe deeper understanding. Cause as soon as they hear that term, they're like, Oh, that's you know, just a load of nonsense. Not all masculinity is toxic. And then you hear mm-hmm. the usual lines of argumentation. And what do you think is the best way you can kind of, approach you know men with with this conversation without those terms that are, have become very loaded terms not that they're wrong but you know like toxic masculinity for example kind of highlights the most obvious bad behaviors you know like the, the sexual mm-hmm. assaults and everyone can agree that they're dreadful but what do you think is the best way we can you know get men on board with that you know, if especially considering these loaded terms kind of like do provoke kind of defensiveness and mm-hmm. that's a great question i think uh, I just like I'll think through an example. I, for example, I think so. Labels, labels can be very scary. Labels put people off. They, 
for a lot of things. It's like if you're feeling sad, someone throwing in the word depression makes you think, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm just feeling this certain way right now. I've been feeling it for a while. I don't want to, I don't want to approach that just yet. They might get defensive, especially someone who's not comfortable with it, discussing and opening up labels, make them question their structure, their own personal structure. So let's say you take a guy who just dealt with a serious loss. You don't want to start throwing in things like, well, open up to me in this certain way so we can tackle the issues of it. You know, think about it just like how a, a human would, how to approach these guys. Hey man, how did that, like ask those questions that get to a deeper level without insinuating that you have some opening up motive. What was that? What was that person like? What was that person that you lost? Like, Oh, I don't know. They were blah, 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 blah. You know? Oh, did you have a, a, a tight bond with them? Talk to them in their, the way they approach these things. You know, if they have this really surface level understanding of their relationship, like, Oh, you know, he's just a good buddy of mine. Good buddy of mine. You know, elaborate on that. What was that like? What would you guys do together? It's these questions that are more conversational. I think that make people understand the benefit of just talking and feeling and understanding, you know, you're right. The word toxic masculinity is, is a word that makes people afraid that things they may not see as a problem, like are a problem. And yeah, people put up walls for that. I don't know if my cousin put up a wall for that. I don't know how his wall came out. Of course, I didn't approach him with, you're being toxically masculine. But it's it's this middle ground finding it somewhere of asking questions that, that keep the labels out of it. It's, let me just collect my thoughts. I mean, yeah, I think, I think that's kind of where I'm at. It's, it's an age old question. How do you, how do you connect with people on that level? In the friends I've seen, in the, in the interactions I've seen, people are a lot more willing to talk and a lot more willing to understand if it's in a language they understand, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah, no, completely agree. I think it's, it's all about, I think, I think kind of the underlying theme is it's all about trying to maybe find a way whereby you can sort of talk about these things without kind of triggering the defense mechanisms, you know, mm-hmm. because toxic masculinity triggers a defense mechanism. Either like, no, I'm not that guy. I never do this. But, mm-hmm. you know, because every all of those examples of, you know, the guy committing a lot of violent crime or the guy who's like, you know, doesn't curb even at the higher levels, you know, the businessman doesn't curb in anyone, you know, just exploiting everybody, mm-hmm. you know, just, you know, give me money, 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 you know, and all the rest of it. I think it's all about kind of, you know, bypassing those defense mechanisms. And I think like, like you use a really good example there of, you know, talking to talking to them about their friends rather than being like, oh, you should open up to me, man. You know, I'm here for you sort of thing. Cause they'll mm-hmm. be like, you know, cause one of the ways we're traditionally socialized is you, you're not supposed to need anyone and you're not supposed to. So immediately mm-hmm. you're like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, no, I, you can have, you know, I, I'll be there for you, man. You know, if you need me, they're immediately going to be like, no, I don't need anyone. But mm-hmm. asking about yeah. the actual thing that happened, you know, is a great way to, I think mm-hmm. to bypass all of those social defense mechanisms. Yeah. So I think that's, that's a really, really, really excellent point. It keeps the conversation a conversation and not an intervention and an emotional exercise. It's not these these labels or buzzwords in our heads that trigger these these things. Like I am a man. I don't need to depend on anyone. That's what my father told me. He, you know, he was this guy who pulled himself up from these bootstraps and didn't and didn't have to do this. So I don't need to do it either. I don't need to. My teacher, blah blah blah. I don't need to in, invest myself in this emotional exercise. But keep it a conversation just like any other conversation. And I think people 
will open up emotionally more than they think they would. That doesn't mean they're going to start crying. That doesn't mean they're going to, you know, come to some enlightenment about their emotional point. But if they can reach a point where they're talking about a person they love or a thing they care about or something they're concerned about or a fear of theirs in a way that makes sense to them, that's one step in the right direction. And if that's all the the direction goes, that's great too. That's going somewhere other than I'm going to keep this to myself until I die. And it just, it just stews there. Yeah. No, you're, you're absolutely buying on the mark. I think, you know, one of the things that really that's, cause I've had some other conversations around this topic, you know, maybe from a different perspective, but one of the things that really kind of that I'm becoming more aware of these days is that the English language, you know, there's a lot of limitations in the English language itself for talking about a lot of these things. Like there's a really, mm. what I find is like the emotional vocabulary of the English language for a start is really bad compared to some other languages, you know, like mm. there's not that I'm, you know, I know a lot of other languages, but I, I remember doing a little bit of reading around this topic and it's kind of like, like some of the Latin languages and some of the Asian languages have a really rich emotional vocabulary and, emotional like there's words there's words in japanese that communicate really specific emotional yeah. states you know which we have the english language i find has a really big sort of fixation on categories for one there's definitely a massive sort of real sort of obsession with categories i find in the whole english language structure but also there is this obsession with sort of all encompassing nouns as well so anger is mm -hmm. a really good example but anger at what you know what, what type yeah. of anger and obviously there are more specific words so there's furious for example in english language or you know incandescent if you want to get all shakespearean mm -hmm. <laughs> but the uh but it's just there's so many problems with the language itself and that's why i think like you know if you're a guy traditionally socialized say in the english language and you're traditionally socializing that you know that masculine way you don't, don't show your emotions and all a lot of them actually lack the emotional vocabulary to, to really just articulate mm. what's going on in them. Not only because they've never had to, but or yeah. never supposed to, but they're not even provided with the tools a lot of the time. You know, the linguistic yeah. tools, you know, it's just, I'm mm -hmm. angry, you know, but angry at what? And love's another one, like love of what? There's love of your job, there's love of your fiance, there's you know, love of the, the view mm -hmm. of sunset. There's, there's just, there's so many different types of love as well, but they all get sucked into nouns. You know, and I think mm -hmm. the English language has got a real issue with that. So there's definitely problems within its structure, I think, with this whole thing as well. And mm -hmm. yeah, and I think it's a really, really, it becomes more obvious to me. Like when the more, the more of these I do, I'm kind of like, yeah. you know, but, but I think that takes us really neatly into the next question. So we've established kind of that this masculine condition starts really young, you know, and it's not mm -hmm. only is it subtle, but it starts super, super young. There's some child mm -hmm. developmental literature that kind of shows that, sort of between the ages of say four to six, you know, like girls yeah. and boys will actually not, not kind of like associate their gender with certain categories. So like say brilliance and toughness don't actually become male or female at that age. Do the same mm -hmm. study around two, three years later. And then there's a mm -hmm. whole, so there's a really crucial yeah. developmental phase, you know, that's it's really mm -hmm. short and it's tragically short as well. You're kind of like, mm -hmm. well, how, how is you, Timmy, thinking this at four and then this at seven, you know, <laughs> it's just, yeah. you know, and it's just but yeah, and I think, because I, I can recall, you know, being, you know, called, uh, called derogatory names from young age, you're told to man up, you know, stop being a pussy, you know, and all the terrible, mm -hmm. you know, it's a really derogatory language and all the mm -hmm. rest of it. I, you kind of touched on it before, but what, what do you think parents and teachers, because I think it's a joint effort, because your parents could be socializing you one way, but you can go into school where everyone's being socialized a different way and you're 
when you're an adolescent, you know, peer feedback becomes more important than parental feedback because you kind of know, like, oh, my parents are going to, if you have, you know, if you're fortunate enough mm-hmm. to grow up with, you know, good parents, you're going to be like, oh, my parents are going to love me no matter what. But, mm-hmm. you know, like, so I want I want people in the wider society to like me as well. So that that's a fundamental shift that changes. But what can parents and teachers do to kind of combat, you know, that sort of thing? It's very sort of warlike language there, but sort of, you know, you know, tackle it and engage with it, you know, in a really, really productive way. What can they both do? Or not just parents or teachers, but any sort of figure, you know, involved. Yeah. That's a great question. And I think I can speak on example in my experience. I had, a, I, I still have, I still have a wonderful father. He is very comfortable with his emotional state. He's very he, I guess the way he does it is it's a more just kind of setting an example and he's not a big crier, not at all. I've, I've seen him cry very few times, but what he does say is he, he'll highlight the things that are difficult, the things he loves, the things that are very niche emotional experiences. I felt confused today about this. Have you, did you feel confused about that? You know, or something like that in terms of our role models, um, I, I think that's something that's really important because a lot of people may not may lack the structure from the home. But take I'm going to use my wrestling coach as an example. And in my TED talk for context, I pointed out this instance where my wrestling coaches just didn't say the right things in the right moment. And I want to highlight these are really great men, really dedicated to making sure kids, you know, grow to be good people. And it was this moment that I think it was just the wrong execution of those intentions. But I also want to highlight something really good about one of my coaches. He's also my art teacher um, in middle school. And it was this, this, this model for you can combine these two really different worlds of a wrestling mat, go and get it, the grit, the power. You know, it's all about the drive. These very traditionally masculine ideals. That's I think that's what a lot of wrestling is. It's not anger. It's not necessarily rage. It's more power and and discipline, which aren't bad things in and of themselves. But he also combines this with this model of how do you express yourself creatively? How do you be patient with the the clay project you're doing? How do you draw something that reflects, you know? what you want to draw and what you want to, you know, do. And I think as a role model, if you can find these worlds to, you know, pair together, if you're a football coach, highlight something else you do show that you're multifaceted in the places you are. I think that's the model you can set. Say I exist as both. I am the figure of the drive. I'm the figure of the power that is often associated with whatever I'm doing. If, if you are, and I also do this, I'm also a father of a kid. I'm also, I, I, I teach this class, I do this activity that isn't as commonly associated with these images of masculinity, because that's what people look up to. That's what that four-year-old and a six-year-old look up to. If you have a group of four-year-olds together running around in classroom to see their teacher who not only throws in the football and slaps them on the back and say, oh, come on, like, go get it, but also how to delicately paint a picture of a, of a cool setting I think that's 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 an example of where it could start in, in these multi-dimensional figures. Yeah, no, I think that's a really excellent point. I think it's it's almost like what would you say? 
the the figure the authority figures and the you know the, the role models you know it's almost as if it's convincing them to embrace kind of like a or having role models that have subtler identities almost like so not mm-hmm. just like socially conditioned people in a, in a subtler way but they have subtler identities in a way so yes okay i'm i'm this sort of a more i'm masculine in that traditional sense in this way you know i do wrestling i, I the wrestling coach mm-hmm. is a great example but look, I also, you know, do this, you know, I like, I like having really pretty flowers in my garden. You know, I like, I like doing all this, you know, I like putting scented candles in my house. I like, you know, you, you make a really good point that, and over time, I think, I think with that realization, I think the, those, those, those categorical identities start to dissolve. I think like whenever you realize, okay, well, look, this yeah. guy masculine in this way say he's, he does boxing here he does you know he's mm-hmm. this, but he's also does all this which is you know so <laughs> people are forced to become more sophisticated in their approach to the world because they could be like okay so this category clearly you know is mm-hmm. valid and doesn't isn't rich enough to sort of like capture mm-hmm. the whole of human experience in a way so mm-hmm. i think i need to dispense with it and i need to rethink it and you know happier yeah. world, i think you know when you realize that you know people aren't mm-hmm. this that or the other they're often you know, like you know, I think mm-hmm. you've alluded to you know a spectrum, a, a blend, mm-hmm. you know, and kind of like you know, not just like one's way, but many ways. You know, uh, they might even yeah. be that one way, but they're also many, many ways mm-hmm. as well. So I think it's a really, really, a really excellent point. I think like an exact like what that, especially because as an older, and you kind of said that dissolve these categories almost dissolve when you're. 18 years old, you might look at the the wrestling coach who's also an art teacher and not think of it the same way that young guy would because it, when you're a kid you're, you're not thinking in these kind of deeper understandings of yourself you're just looking at the people around you see how they act see how they carry themselves and let's say your role model isn't great at expressing themselves emotionally let's say it's just you know that's not what they're what they do so carry it out through your actions instead you know what you do what you find interesting because people are multifaceted even the ones who really express themselves in these very traditionally masculine ways yeah yep no totally agree that kind of takes us nicely into the, the final question it's been a really great conversation so far i've very much enjoyed this conversation i think uh it's kind of i knew the conversation was going to be that's good you know really honestly <laughs> uh, based on your ted talk and everything you spoke about what what does the future look like for for reese mckinney you know what's 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 the next 10 years look like for you that's a great question that's a great question for a lot of college students here. You know, I, I, yeah, going into college, going into Duke, going into this whole world, I legitimately would be satisfied being a high school teacher. I kind of said that's, that's if things don't work out, if things, not even if things don't work out, that makes it sound so bad. As in, if I don't have a plan anytime soon, that's what I'm going to do. But I will say, and this is just a, a cultural observation about a lot of college campuses and a lot of, things and maybe it reflects something about what we've been talking about today but there's a very big drive to you know get get money get the power a lot of people in in my university go into things like finance and consulting which often are these big you know it's it's what attracts people and i've talked to so many students who feel this weird pressure of well i came into this school wanting to do this thing and do good for world, good for the world. And not that these positions don't, but they tend to be more money related. And I, I want to try to stay away from that as, as best I can. I want to try to stick to maybe it's not a high school teacher, but it's an education policy 
advocate or representative. Maybe it's, I don't know what the professional sense might be. I think after long and hard thinking and experiences, I know that in the next 10 years, if I were to become a father, I know the father I would be, or at least I hope I know I'm the father I'd be. I think everyone might try to say that, but never know. I I spoke to a professor recently who kind of said he had a tougher relationship with his father. His father was just not, he was just this an example of the worst of the worst of what we've been talking about. And he, he said that one day, this professor has a beard. He says, one day, 20 years ago, I shaved it for a costume. I shaved my beard for a costume I was going to. I looked in the mirror and I looked like my father. And I realized I'm just a whole lot more like him than I ever thought. And immediately I grew the beard back, beard back, and I've never shaved it since. And I think that comment just kind of scared me because my worst nightmare is for my son one day to not necessarily, it's not hate or resent, but not want to be associated with the image of me or, or what I carry. And in 10 years, then I want to be that face that can be a source of comfort, a source of, is a role model of some case, of some way. I don't know if it's, even if I'm a dorky father, I don't care. I want to be that role model. I want to be the one who doesn't care if his face looks like mine or something like that. Yeah. Professionally, I don't know. We'll see. No, Brennan, thank you so much. That's a really nice, that's a really nice kind of way to wrap up the conversation. I think um, the professor example you used there, you know, I think... You know, if if you if you if your son or indeed daughter, you know, is in mm-hmm. some way in the future, you know, they don't want to look like you, they don't want to resemble you at all. I mm-hmm. mean, it's kind of you, you've probably failed as a father, you know, and it's hard mm-hmm. it's hard to say that, you know, because I'm fortunate to have a really good father figure as well, really good. My mm-hmm. dad's amazing, but I think, you know, I, I can't imagine like what that thought process must be like. You know, I don't want to. I realize I look like my dad. I don't want to be like my dad. You know. Mm-hmm. You know, it must be so so difficult to just process that. You know, I can't imagine yeah. what I was going through psychologically there. But yeah, listen, mm-hmm. Reese, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Yeah. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for this great conversation, Barbara and Ryan. If you would like to join and share your story, please email us or reach out on our social media channels. You will find all the info in the podcast description. See you next time.